don't ever wait for the time to be absolutely right. Just begin with the tools at hand. And if they're not the tools you need, the tools you'll need will appear. The future of dentistry belongs to the innovators. Welcome to Innovation in Dentistry. I'm your host, Sean Zayas, and I believe that the future of dentistry is going to be unbelievably great over the next decade and two decades, but the question isn't that. The question is, are you gonna be part of what makes dentistry great? So I could not be more excited today to have the opportunity to interview Dr. David Moffat. And before I cue you up, let me just say thank you so much for letting me interview you today. My pleasure. So, David, uh, if I can, I call you we David on the away. show. Okay. So, can I call you David on the show? Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, sure, okay. sure. That's absolutely fine. Okay. So, so David, innovation can take on so many different forms, right? There's clinical innovation, there's technological innovation, but at the heart of it all, there's some crazy person that says that has like either a belief set or mindset that says, why not me? Like, why can't I step up and pioneer positive change? And that's exactly what you've done. Could you tell us a little bit about just even kind of your origin story of how you got into dentistry? Oh, gee, Sean, we're going back to ancient history now. And, uh, you know, I was just clever at school. And so people said, if you're going to be clever at school, you should be a doctor or a veterinarian or a dentist. And I thought, well, animals can't tell me what's wrong with them. So they're out. So it was either a doctor or dentist. So I really wanted to be a doctor and I missed the marks and I got into dentistry and I, and I was so disappointed. And I, I said to my mom, I'm going back to school and redo the last year of school again to get into, into medicine. And she goes, well, with one day to go, she says, if you didn't want to be a dentist, why did you bother putting it down as a, as a choice? And I go, all right, good call, mum. All right, let's give dentistry a go. So I studied really hard in first year and second year dentistry. And after second year dentistry, I got my transfer to medicine. But all the guys that I went to school with, they were all out in regular jobs. None of them were at university. It was a pretty um, working class sort of area that we lived in. And I just wanted to get a job and just get out and, and, and enjoy life. I got sick and tired of living on less than $50 a week back then. And I thought, I just want to finish. It's three more years of dentistry and I've got a, a job. I can, I can do what I want. Well, otherwise, I go back. It's five more years of med school, two more years of internship. Uh, I can't put myself through that. I'm, I'm done with learning. So I geared myself back on my learning. I actually got a job. I was working 30 hours a week, five nights a week uh, in, a, in a services club. You know, doing concerts and, and, and shows, serving drinks. Um, and I guess that was left field stuff all, as well. You know, my friends used to say I just went to uni during the day to, for something to do during the day while I worked nights. So I got out and, and you know, got a job and worked hard. And after four years, bought my own practice. And then that practice I stayed in for 28 years, 28 years in the one place. When I left that practice, it was more than half my life in that one location. But I've never, I've never lived in a house that long. And, and so a lot of doctors said to me, you know, they said, you had the chance of being a doctor and you chose dentistry. Good move, mate. And so dentistry was really, I guess I, I, I was looking for a business outlet and dentistry was that vehicle. And so I, I took my, my, my business brain into dentistry and I took and, and, and I learned customer service along the way as well. And I applied that to dentistry because I thought dentists are really by and large, and I hate being called a dentist because dentistry is not, not what I am. It's what I do. And so I, I, I wanted to feel that uh, I could, I could do something in dentistry with the skills that I learned while I was working, you know, that, that service, club job and and I was working in a in a news do you know what a news agency is Sean do you do you know, you know what they, they places where people used to go they buy newspapers do you ever heard of what a newspaper used to be you know instead of people <laughs> going to the internet they'd buy a piece of paper and and read it and then you know the next day there'd be more news and not, you know, so I worked in one of those and learned how to serve people and learn how to help people and so that customer service when I brought it into dentistry that was really a game changer for my practice and realizing that people didn't really, you know, they don't go to 
to barbecues. They don't go to dinner parties and go, oh, you need to go to see my dentist. Look at this great crown. Look, there are only 15 micron margins. You know, they don't do that. They tell them about how they make them feel and, and how they make them feel important and how they don't feel ignored. And that's what I, I, I want. You know, people will buy anything if they feel like they're appreciated. And dentistry was the same. And so I built a very successful dental practice, dental office in a working class part of Sydney where people were happy to pay a higher fee because they were being treated like human beings and they were really being cared for. And it was about a friendship. And by the way, I've got to get my teeth done now and then come back and talk to whoever they're talking to. So that's what I did for 28 years in my in my own practice. And that was the really exciting thing. And, and then again, of course, applying business to that is what did I do this year? What did I do last year? Is this year better than last year? Is this month better than last month? Is this visit for this patient better than their last visit when they came here? All those sorts of things, all those uh, all those metrics that you have to keep monitoring because otherwise if you're complacent, you're just going backwards and that's not right either. Okay, so, so for those of us, yeah, no, that answered it great. So for our listeners, in, in case you're wondering why uh, David does have such an amazing accent and voice, you probably heard it there. He said Sydney. So you, uh, I guess, are from and have practice in Sydney, Australia, uh, this entire time. Um, that's that's pretty pretty cool. Now, so I'm curious because I feel like most dentists, David, they they get excited for the idea of dentistry when it comes to clinical. Right? This is what you go to school for. You're ready to start working with your hands, and then they show up in, uh, you know, as an associate or they end up getting into private practice and realizing, oh my God, like there's this entire business side that I have no idea what to do with. And it seems like that wasn't the shock for you. It seems like you were already prepared for the business side of things. Um, so going into dentistry, were you equally as excited about the clinical aspect of getting to use your hands? No, not at all. In fact, as, as a patient, I had no idea what dentistry was about. My first two restorations were done when I was in final year dental school by somebody who was a year older than me and working in the hospital where I was studying and just a couple of occlusal amalgams. So uh, you know, I've only had four teeth restored in my life, uh, none extracted. There's, I, I really knew nothing about going to the dentist except that uh, it, you know, it smelled really weird and, and everybody wore white coats and, and that was about it. You know, we, we were a very preventive oriented family, uh, but my mother was also very pragmatic. She said, why should I pay for the dentist to clean everybody's teeth? We clean our own teeth. You know, so my, my mother being a, well, she was a, uh, I was, she was a nurse and then she was a mother and then she went back to, while I was at school, she went back to school herself and, and became a, a, a school teacher, went to university and became a school teacher. So she was a school teacher, I think, when I was in um, my third last year of high school, she actually started teaching school at a school nearby. Uh, and then my dad went back to, to school and got his um, uh, high school graduation. And then he went to university and, and got a, a Bachelor of Arts degree. So, you know, the whole whole family was at university all, all at one time. But, uh, but so I really didn't know what dentistry was. I learned dentistry at university. I got to university and they said, uh, do you use floss? I didn't even know what floss was. My dentist even tell, didn't even tell us what that was. So the other one guy said, oh, that's that stringy thing. And I'm going, this is 1977. You know, you, you weren't born then, were you, Sean? No. 85. So, <laughs> there you go. So I'd already been a dentist. I'd, I'd almost started buying my own, own um, practice uh, then. Uh, in 1985, I'd, I'd already seen In Excess Live in concert. So... Um, uh, I'll put some time frames on, on. That's the year I saw Bruce Springsteen come to Australia. So that's a long time ago. Um, but the, you know, it's, as you can probably gather, if I like something, I get excited about it and I get passionate about it. And, and so the passion in when I bought my practice in January 1987 was to uh, grow a business, all right? Because how much is this business doing now? How do I improve it? I need to uh, fill my books, see more patients, learn more skills, uh, and grow my customer base. And so that's what I learned to do. And I learned that uh, although Sydney is civilized, we have electricity and, and running water and sanitary 
things in our houses. We're, we're very civilized. It, it basically follows the US and anything that works in the US will work in Australia. So I started learning from non-dental people in the US uh, in um, sales and marketing. So Zig Ziglar, Jim Rohn, Tom Hopkins, um, Tony Robbins, saw all those people live, Lo loved seeing all those people live and learned a lot about business and how to treat people and, and, and metrics from those people. And then I applied to look at, get into the real nuts and bolts of marketing. So uh, Ed O'Keefe, who we've spoken about before, Dan Kennedy, and then meeting the people who follow those people and finding out who else they follow. And that's really what just kept me growing my, my dental practice. And I, I, I really ended up, you know, I started off with a, when I bought my practice, there was one person worked there apart from me. That was the girl who answered the phone and, um, and mixed the, all the staff and cleaned up. And she, she lasted two weeks because I, I wanted her to work. And she was just used to sitting out the front reading magazines while the old bloke used to do everything himself. Well, that didn't last. So if, eventually we grew it from one chair with one staff member to um, and finally it was two offices with seven chairs total and probably about 15 or 20 staff across those. And we took it from $120,000 a year in 1987 to $3.4 million a year in 2011. So that was the growth and it just steady growth, you know, a couple of hundred, 300, 400 each year. It didn't, it didn't, you know, it wasn't like overnight 3 million, but it was just build it, build a hole, build and hold, build and hold and build and hold. And that's, you know, that's what businesses are, are based on that, that solid foundation. So David, was there ever like a meeting you attended um, early on where you went to, you know, a show or an event where you were surrounded by other dentists and you realized, wait a second, they're not wired the way I am. Um, and I'm viewed, I don't know, maybe I'm a little bit of an anomaly because again, um, the, the wiring is almost more engineer based, um, conservative, not in the sense of managing risk, not necessarily entrepreneurial. Not necessarily, oh yeah, let me handle the complexity of business and the challenge of business and see the opportunity and get excited about that. Um, like, was that apparent to you early on? Like when, when did all of a sudden you realize, oh, not every dentist has the business wiring that I do? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I worked, my first year I worked uh, in a satellite practice on my own. So the owner had gone overseas and he just wanted me to finish the, the lease for the practice. And it was already, um, I was just marking time. I didn't even have to, um, I got to keep everything and just pay him a, a, a retainer, a weekly retainer for using his facility. But it wasn't, it wasn't a part of Sydney I liked, I knew. And, and so I knew that I was going to leave there. And then I got a job not far from uh, where I, I went to school and where, where my family was in an even more working class area. But the, the dentist I worked for there had, um, he lived in a well-off a well part of, of Sydney and he sent his children to private school. And he, the lesson I learned from him was that you don't have to live where your office is. You know, he, he would drive 40 minutes there. And so his, his home life was, was distinct from where he derived his income. And he didn't teach me anything, but I learned a lot from him. So, you know, I had to learn from osmosis as to what he was doing and, and the assets that he acquired and what he did. And, but he, it was funny, he identified in me that I wasn't for his practice as a successor. Mm. He said, you, you belong. He actually said, you, you should go, go down to Macquarie Street, which is like Harley Street or, or, or whatever, you know. But th that wasn't for me either. Um, but he, he, he knew that I wasn't going to mark my time until he was ready to retire. That, and that's what happened. So after three years there, I said, yeah, there was no opening for ownership. So I just went and bought my own office and from a, a chap who retired or he said he was going to retire. He didn't retire. He actually went and started working near his home and took half the patients who were his friends to, to, to that other office. So all of a sudden I'd bought an office with equipment, but only a handful of patients so i had to build that up again work emergencies all sorts of stuff but i did you know i just it was it was about survival and um 
And so I, 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 you asked me, was there one lesson? I used to go to the local um, study group. They'd have four every year. And the lesson I learned was I'd hear dentists say, oh, I see 100 new patients a month. And I'm thinking, well, why is your practice not growing? You know, it's 100 coming in and 100 going out. And I thought that's not right. You know, these people need to keep coming back. Dentistry is something that people need to be, um, find a dentist, stay with a dentist until they die or they move so far away that they they can't physically do it. And so that customer service, customer attention process was in the back of my mind, but I was still acquiring skills because dental degrees don't give you enough clinical skills. So I started learning orthodontics and I started learning a little bit of cosmetic work. And I also started learning you know, that the, the dentistry they taught me to do at university only lasts until a patient chews on it. And we need to do other things that are going to last longer in the, in the patient's mouth. So we need to treat the whole mouth for um, their whole life. And so that's what I, 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 I then realized economics that um back then back then in those times the standard life uh, uh journey of of people was that they got married in their early 20s they had their children in their early 20s and by the time they reached their early 40s those children had gone but these people still had to work till they were 65 so they had 20 years of income no children and no debt because they'd already paid that off so they had uh, a, a lot of disposable income. and But they, they weren't just going to work till 65 and live till 65. They were starting to live till 75 and 85. So they were going to retire at 65, but their teeth needed to last them till, they, till their death. And so mm. I thought, well, silly just getting their teeth to last till they're 65 and then pull them out and then they got false teeth. They, they'd rather have teeth that last. So I said, you've got to superannuate your teeth. You've got to make sure that when you retire, your teeth aren't going to be an expense. So we've got to fix them now. So they're going to last that, that, that into the seventies and eighties. And they go, oh, that's fine. Let's do that. So let's replace these big amalgams with, with porcelain crowns on their back teeth, just so they could chew properly. And to me, that was logical. And they had the income to do it. Now, of course, people don't get married till they're 30 or 40. They don't even choose a career. Some of them, <laughs> Some of these kids grow up, they go to university, and, oh, I don't like being a lawyer, I don't like being a doctor, I'm going to go back and do something else. To me, there was no, there was no going back, as, as, as I, I told you. you know, this is your career, this is what you've done, just go out and make it work. And that's what I did. That's, I, I just went out and made it work. I mean, it's amazing because I feel like you're, you're an individual that has uh, such a yearning for, for knowledge. You can tell um, I, we're going to get to the fact that like you now coach dentists, but I feel like the best coaches are those that have themselves been coached, been educated, invested in, uh, mentors and had that, just that desire to just learn as much as they can. So I, I see you have such a high IQ, you have such a high EQ. Um, and it almost seems like your career just continued to cycle upwards. Was there ever a time where you got like a left hook that you weren't expecting uh, or there was ever a season where, I don't know, maybe you didn't, you didn't want to get out of bed because um, things, things were hard. And if there, there wasn't, that's totally fine. But I'm just curious, was there ever a low for you? Well, it's funny. You should say that Sean, because um, after five years of owning my practice uh, in 1990, six, I, I started flatlining for four years. So I grew for five years and I flatlined for four years. And people said, you're going all right, David, your, your practice is doing double what the average is doing. You, you know, you're going good. But I, I had gaps in my books uh, and I just thought there's got to be something better. But I thought that maybe the answer was not to be doing dentistry. Maybe I should just be entrepreneurial in another field. And so I thought I would sell my practice and try my hand at something else. I didn't know what it was going to be. And so I put my house, my practice on the market, but I sold it like I was trying to sell my house. So I was telling everybody how great my practice was and, and how much better it was than all my competitors and the, all my competitors were, uh, were doing things badly. And three of the people who looked at my practice said, you know, this is a really good practice, but they went and set up as my competition. They either bought another practice in town or they set up. And I go, well, that plan's not working. In fact, one of them said he could coach me because he had a really good practice. He said, I'll coach you. So I said, yeah, all right, you can be my coach. But I found out that he was working part-time at a, 
one of my competitors while he was coaching me 900 metres down the road. So that didn't work. We ended up in court with that. But I realised that it wasn't, coaching wasn't bad. It was just I'd chosen a bad coach. Fortunately for me, I chose another coach who I worked with for six and a half years. And in that six and a half years, we, we tripled the practice from $400,000 a year to $1.2 million a year. And I, and, and I really like working with that coach, but then he, he just went in a vague direction. He had done, he had gathered all the clients together, which I thought was a great idea as a, this is back in 1992. I thought he's going to try and, oh, hang on. Now this is 2002. Uh, 10 years on, he, I thought he's going to try and sell this, you know, as a corporation. And he said, no, I said, you've had a buyer, didn't you? And he goes, no, I never had a buyer. And I thought, well, that's where, that's where the future of it was. So I anticipated that corporate corporates was going to come to dentistry because I, I played golf with a doctor who told me about when he sold his medical practice to, to a corporate buyer, he said, it was like, he said, how long did I have to think about it? He said, like a heartbeat. You know, the number they offered me was just ridiculous. And so I was, I had realized that I couldn't sell my practice to another dentist because it was already such a high turnover. The only person who could buy it was somebody who could do that for themselves. So, but I thought corporate, corporatization will come to dentistry and it did. And so I was ready. So that, that was kind of not a left hook, but it was, it, I, I, I built my practice out of the market but then a new market appeared to buy. And, and like in some cases, being the first adapter or adopter was an advantage. And so I was one of the first eight or nine to sign a heads of agreement with the first corporate. And, and when I sold to them in 2007, I stayed on with them for five years and then the next owner for another two years. But in that five years that I stayed on with them, I grew the practice from 2.4 million to 3.4 million with the principles of what I was doing already. It's like people said, oh, you got your money, you put your feet up. No, no, I just you know, keep turning up, keep doing what I'm doing because the, the, they had a very hands-off approach because they figured, you you know, you buy a racehorse, you just keep feeding it good food and let it run. You don't say, oh, you're a racehorse. Now you got to, you know, while you're not racing, you've got to plow fields because you're a horse. But that's what the second owner wanted to do. And so I left there in 2014 um, and that was about the time that arthritis was starting to affect my body. So I had my shoulder replaced in 2015, found out by 2017 that I had arthritis in my hands and or in my thumb joints. So that was just affecting how I was holding things. So I retired clinically in 2017, but I'd already started coaching. I know you're going to ask me this question. So when did I want to be a coach? So about 2012, I'd met um, a dentist who was a coach in America. Actually, I'd met him in 2002 online. I met him in 2010 in real life and I liked what he was doing. And I thought, yeah, that's my next, that's my next career. And so I was planning that. And, and so I was, I was already part-time coaching while I started about this arthritis, but the arthritis is so bad in my hands now that I now have to not, I can't even shake somebody's hand because they just crush mm. it. And, and like, mm. even last night I was just going, no, I've, I've just got to, I've, like COVID was good because nobody was shaking hands, but now everybody's back shaking hands. I'm going, no, I'm, I'm gone. I can't, I can't, I, yeah, I'm giving. When, when I, when I meet you, we'll just pound it. You know, I'm just like, that's it. But yeah, it's just like that. But yeah, it's, sadly, yeah. Otherwise it's a wet fish and that's no good. Um, so, so anyway, um, so, so, so yeah, the, I guess having the bad coach, the other thing was that at that time in 1996, um, I said, I said to my wife, you know, we, we're not able to sell this practice. We're going to have to do something and we're going to have to sell the house and take some of the equity because we've been putting equity in, into the house and not so much in the practice. I said, we're going to put the equity back into the practice. And that's a tough thing. You know, we had a one-year-old and a four-year-old at that time. So, and, and my wife was a, a stay-home mom. So it's not like, not like these kids today where, uh, all of a sudden they, they have decide they're going to have children and they have to sign their parents back up to be parents again, to be grandparents. Right. Like, uh, like that never happened in my, for my kids. My kids, you know, uh, my mother died while they were very young. So they were one grandparent down. And then uh, my wife's parents moved away and retired because they wanted a retirement lifestyle of their own. So they moved away from all their, their children and grandchildren and they just got visitation um, holidays. So, 
it was it was it, it was it was tough. But now kids, it's like uh, I've got clients pregnant. I've, I didn't get them pregnant. I have a pregnant client. Um, and, and <laughs> That's saying, a great part. We'll just we'll lead with that in the marketing. Yeah, I'm sure <laughs> it'll, it'll get. Yeah, I'm sure that's going to be a a, a, a sizzle reel. Yeah, um, but she uh, she's planning. She said, "Look, I need I need to know when the coaching days are next year because I've got to organise sitters and and babysitters." And and it's really weird. I'm actually having to tell her. Uh, she said, "I like I said I said your husband he doesn't have breasts, does he?" And I said, "So you you need to spend time with the baby." and and get that bond that physical bond it's just sitting there with a baby in your arms it's not like oh time to feed time to put it down it's it there's this that time is so valuable and it creates that lifetime bond between a child and his mother um all the, all the time and and it's not a transactional relationship with your children but that's what i feel that we're getting now with now i'm getting into into <laughs> that's okay so 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 david i am i'm so curious because um I, I sense there's such a resilience in you but there's also such a like an excellence and an optimism and i don't know was it was it something that you had to learn um while you're in the market while you're doing things or was so much of this even just because of maybe the love the support even that came from your your upbringing because it sounds like your parents were really amazing people. And again, I also want to acknowledge, like, I'm, I'm sorry about, you know, losing your mom. It sounds like it was an earlier departure than, than maybe it, it could have been if she didn't get to be a grandma long enough. Um, but, but it seems like you had these amazing parents that were able to, I don't know, pour into you a lot. Am I off on that? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I was uh, eldest child. So I, I had to do a lot of things myself that, my younger brother and sister got um, more support from my parents than I did. Uh, at my mother's funeral, my mother died of ovarian cancer, so she she was diagnosed at sixty one, and and she got um, three years after surgery, and then two two years of fighting the thing. You know, it's a death sentence when you get it anyway. So she she died at sixty six, um, but. Uh, at her funeral, everyone said how strict she was as a as a parent, and and but I my dad was my dad always worked as an employed person. He 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 worked for yeah, he was in the air force when I was born, and then he had three sales jobs, um, long term sales jobs with as and then as a sales manager and then an operations manager, and so uh, uh, one was with an electronics company. The next one was with a, a company called. Uh, Borden's Chemical Company from the US, and they made Elmer's glue, um, and so he worked for them. And then, it, then he, then he started the New South Wales office for Motorola when Motorola came to Australia in 1971. So, but head office was in Melbourne. But because he was family based, um, he refused to be transferred to Melbourne. So people who worked for him got transferred to Melbourne and became his boss. And mm. so he retired at. Uh, when my mum was 55, he decided to retire at the same time. She wasn't expecting him to retire. She was, you know, on a, on a, as a teacher, that was a, an optimal time for her to retire. But he was on this weird retirement package that uh, was based on the average of his best three of his last five years, and they were going to slip off. So he said, no, I'm going now. And so they had, a, they, you know, so they had 11 years, but of those 11 years, five years of that, my mum was fighting cancer. But... Mm. I remember asking my dad if he would go guarantor on a on a property loan. Um, my boss that I was telling you about uh, said you should buy a, 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 a it was a bed sitter in, uh, in this uh, apartment block, and it had uninterrupted views of Sydney Harbour and the Opera House. It was like it was it was cheapest chips. It was only sixty thousand dollars back then, and it's probably worth two million now. Um, and so, I, but my dad said, oh, no, he said, don't ask me to be guarantor. He said, I just can't do that. Anyway, somehow I ended up getting the loan. I, I only had that property for a year because then I had to sell it to buy my practice and you okay. know, I needed money to buy my practice. So it wasn't something that I was able to keep. But I, would, I, I always looked at risk as being part of what you had to do, you know, to, to, to borrow and pay back. As long as I could pay the bank, keep the banks away, you know, risk. 
28.5% interest rate on my business loan, 7.5% on my home loan back in the 90s. It was just just what you had to do. And and so it's always using financial risk to, you know, to, to grow your assets. And, and that's, you know, again, in, in the property market, that's what you do. You, your debts never go up, but the value of your property goes up. So as long as you can hold that debt line, you, you grow your equity with time in real estate. So, um, yeah, I, I, I'm still, as we were talking before, I'm still looking at, um, at, 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 you know, a lot of people are saying, well, you should be retired now and just enjoying and just eating away at your capital. No, I, I still like the, 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 the feel of business and I enjoy coaching for success. And I, I've, I've really enjoyed that over the last 12 years. But, you know, I'm feeling like being a business owner again as, as well and, and also doing some other things. Uh, Again, I, I just can't imagine just getting up and saying, okay, let me read the newspaper for the day until dinner's ready. Um, this, no, you, you you need to be in motion getting I mean, to time, yeah. do something you love. So, so tell me about it. In your journey as a dentist, was there like a mindset either that you had to embrace or a mindset you had to shed in order for you to continue to grow? I think I had to embrace, I had to embrace that, a university education wasn't going to allow me to grow the practice that I wanted to. So uh, when I was looking to buy my, my practice uh, with a, with a friend of mine, we looked at a practice and he said, um, he, he knew this practice and he said, this lady does a lot of orthodontic work. And I, I go, what the heck, you know, appliances and fixed orthodontics. And I'm going, how does she do that? That's kind of like voodoo. She's not trained in that. And then, the two years into owning my practice, I, I, I found that you could get that training. And so I, I started doing that training with um, Skip Truitt from Texas, used to come out to Australia. So that was the first um, non-university education in, in orthodontics. Now they're everywhere. The orthodontists are training dentists to do orthodontic work. Um, and, and that's one of the myths of dentistry. And it's not just in orthodontics. In orthodontics, yeah, we were taught you can identify a kid's got crooked teeth and then write a referral. That's the orthodontic part of the degree. And I heard that in some dental schools in the US, extractions are taught the same way. Oh, this tooth needs to come out. Here, let me show you how to hold, how I hold the, the forceps. Now you hold my hand and feel how I've got the grip on the forceps and feel how I'm squeezing those forceps and squeal and that's how you pull it out. Now, write a referral every time you see one of those. So, you know, the, the oral surgery departments get like that as well. Now, the endodontists are struggling because um, of implants. Uh, a lot of dentists are just saying, I, if we do root canal, this tooth's going to fail anyway. So why bother with the root canal? Just let's get it out and put an implant in and be done with the 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 preservation you're gonna it's gonna be an implant anyway may as well do it now and so the endodontists are struggling that way um so i just learned that i needed to learn those things i did um lvi because i thought these guys are doing full arch cases in short time how do they how do they do it there's a process that i've not been taught and although i didn't become a you know every mouth was an lvi case I did my share of them, you know, ten or twelve over over a five year period. Um, that really changed people's lives, and um, you know, uh, in fact, one lady came in and we we replaced some old veneers that she had done ages ago. Uh, she passed away within a year of me doing that, and I was kind of like, oh, she spent a lot of money with me. And but her daughter said she was so proud of her new smile for that year. You know, that mm -hmm. that again that that's that life-changing thing that, that you get to give people uh, as a dentist. So there is the art and, and, the, and the emotion of that, but also there's, there's the feeling of success of being able to, can I do, I can do this for people. Of being, you know, some, of, some of the ortho cases I did, you know, patients would say, oh, you're the magician. Like I couldn't believe that you straightened my teeth. So I, I, I just love that, that, that feeling of giving back. But there's, there's times where people are unrealistic about their, their teeth as well. So that can be, um, I know you asked me that question, do I love de dentistry or I hate it? I say it's complicated sometimes. Sometimes you don't like some of the people because they have unrealistic expectations. Other times, um, just the smallest thing makes a huge difference to them. And it may not be about the actual physical dentistry. It's about 
um, some of my patients used to say that I was the only person who sent them birthday cards and Christmas cards. Wow. So, yeah. Well, I was going to say, so, so the reason why I'm doing this podcast is because I know dentistry is going to be great in the next 10 years, but my whole contention is, is it going to be because of the listener that's hearing this show or are they just going to stay on the sideline and watch as pioneers like you continue to lead and add value? Because when it comes down to it, um, being a dentist, it's more than enough. But between the lines of what you and I are saying, I know there's listeners that are like, man, there's, there's a passion I have, or, or there's another desire I have in me to, to lead in this way or to serve. And, you know, some of the people I interview, they start software companies or they start movements in this way, or they're doing events, um, or they're transforming lives like you are through, through coaching. But what, what happens with the people that are on the sideline is that there's all those reasons why they don't, right? Well, I don't know if it's the right time, or I'm not really sure if I'm ready, or what if I don't really know enough and I step out and I look foolish because ultimately as a dentist, maybe they're viewed in their community and by their peers with, with honor and with respect, but to start something new, you have to go back to that beginner's mindset. And maybe you look kind of foolish trying something for the first time and it not working. Did you ever struggle with any of um, those types of mindsets or belief patterns that would keep you from moving forward? Cause it seems like you, you just kind of like fearlessly jump jump into things. Um, but I'm guessing there's still some aspect of humanity you share with those that might be a little more timid. Um, is, is that true? Or you kind of just, that was never a struggle of yours? Yeah, it, it, it's, uh, yeah. One of the clients I'm working with at the moment um, spoke to me two years ago and then, and I knew that she needed what I was doing two years ago, but she only came on board, you know, Two years later and although she's missed that opportunity of well you know she's lost that time she's embraced what she needs to do to um grow a, a, a better practice and that's what she's doing she's growing a better practice she's probably in it she, she probably learned a lesson in that two years that scarred her but mm -hmm. she's, the lesson she's learned since we've been coaching is that that's just in the past and the future is going to be always better if you've got the right person to hold your hand and help you with the decisions. And she, and, and, and I like, I always remind her during the calls is that I'm so impressed with the person she's become. And she keeps saying, well, I just figured David, you know, sometimes I agree with you just to shut you up, but it works out being, <laughs> it actually works out being what I should have done. And and that's the thing, Sean, even in coaching, there are still clients who sign up with you and they say, you know, this isn't working for me. And you know what I feel like doing? I feel like just buying them a mirror and posting them and saying, here's the answer to your problem. Have a look in the mirror. It's you. You haven't let go of your limiting beliefs. You haven't trusted the process because every successful client that I have, that's what they've done. It's Yoda and Luke in the Empire Strikes Back. Now, that was about the time you were born as well, Sean, maybe the year before. Yeah, probably the year before that as well. But do you know that you know the scene where Luke's learning how to use the lightsaber and Yoda says, Luke, you just got to trust the force. You know, you, you have to trust the force. And, and there's another great line in that movie as well. There is no try. There is only do and not do. And... Mm. Those are, are key things. Nothing works if you don't do it, all right? Nothing works if you don't do it. Sure, there's times where you do need to say no, and I've learned that lesson. You can't just say yes to everything because you do make mistakes by saying yes. But ultimately in life, you've got to make, you've got to make, have more wins than losses. And so you've got to reduce your losses, but you can't have a win if you haven't tried. And Michael Jordan will say that he's missed more baskets than anybody but that's the result of that is that he's made more baskets than everybody as well. And, you know, it's the Arnold Palmer said it as well, that somebody said, Oh, that was a lucky shot. He said, you know what, the, the more I practice, the luckier I get. And that's what people have to realize the successful clients that I have. And, and, and I, and I do a webinar twice a month. Sorry. I do a presentation twice a month. 
that is, is a webinar. But I do that and I play a couple of testimonial um, interviews that I did with clients and both, both these clients said, you know what, I knew I needed to change. I just didn't know what, but I knew that the change had to be with somebody who had done it before and had helped others. And that's what I bring to the table. I've done it. I know it works. Sometimes I wonder if it does work when people say, you know, this isn't working for me, but it's them that's not working. It's not me. And so, again, it's the 80-20 rule. Um, I saw it explained last night at the speakers meeting I went to. One of the guys who manages speakers, he said, you know, in the car market, in the speaking market, he said it's exactly the same. In the car market, you know, you've got a triangle. The bottom 80%, they're Kias. He said then the top 1% is Bentleys, but the 19% in the middle, that's the European cars. And there's Audis, there's Jags, there's whatever. He said, you can't make a Kia become an Audi or a Jag. You know, people who buy that expect it to be a Kia. They don't expect Audi or Jag. And if you sold them an Audi or a Jag at Kia prices, they'd be suspicious there was something wrong as well. So coaching is like that. You're in that top 20%. You're looking for people who want change and realize that, What's what's what they're doing is kind of not working as well as it should be. And when those people knock on your door and say, look, I'm ready to embrace change, it's time to change. And another one of my clients, um, past clients, she said, she rang me and she said, I'm yeah, I'm interested, but not quite ready. Then she rings me two years later, she said, David, she said, it's time to put my big girl pants on. And we we changed her practice and changed her mindset about being a practice owner from a, a hobby while her husband was making the income um, to actually, in fact, she became the chief breadwinner in her family because he got laid off for a couple of years because he was, he flew airplanes for, for and airplanes didn't fly for two years. So, um, so it, yeah, her, her, her practice was, you know, she said, what do I have to do? And she said, I'll, I'll, I'll buy this other practice. And, and merge it and take it over. I said, hang on, you're buying a really successful practice. You're buying a racehorse. I said, don't change the racehorse. You just work in the corner and let him keep going his hardest at what he's already been doing. Great relationship. Six or seven years on, they're both doing wonders in this same practice now. And you know, he's this, you know, the, the dentist he bought the practice off, he's 20 years older um, and he's loving working as, as the pr chief producer in her practice so she she kind of just put her parked her ego and and let it happen so anything's possible in coaching if you get the right coach and you identify with that coach some people don't identify with with how i i operate uh, others you know again it's not it's like tony robbins if you're scared of fire you'd never go and see tony robbins but the thing right. about the, the thing you've done the fire walk haven't you no i i i've i've um learned more from Brendan Bouchard, which is more of like one of his protégés, um, than Tony specifically. I, I, I've virtually learned from Tony, uh, cause he's just, I mean, he's been around, <laughs> he is like one of the fathers of inspiration. Um, love what he does, but I've actually never been to one of his in-person events. Well, well I, I went to one of his one day events and I thought oh, I'll buy this two day or three day thing. I didn't know there was going to be a firewalk when I, <laughs> I signed up for it. Not in my wife, I go, what the heck? And it's like everybody's doing it, so well you got to do it. But the 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 thing about that, and I did this. You were born then. Um, it was 19, 1994. The thing about it was that it's the metaphor is that it's not about the the firewalk. It's about getting to the other side and how good you feel at at having achieved that and having done that. And and so you're actually not even focused on the fire. And I remember saying to a friend of mine, I said. Were there really coals there? Because it was done in the dark. And she goes, uh, David. She said there were coals. She said, let me tell you this: when they, when when I, she said when I was about to do it, they said we need more coals, and they brought the coals over in a wheelbarrow, and they were, they were so hot that the bottom of the wheelbarrow just burnt out. And I'm going, oh, really? <laughs> so again, it's it, it's just about um, it's it's about blocking out all the negatives oh i'm gonna get burnt you know and just what's the process i have to do to get across there what do i have to think what do i have to say how do i have to pace myself in my walk because they said if you run the stuffles you know if you run it'll stick to your feet and you'll burn your feet you have to walk walk quickly don't kick it up so it burns on on the back of your your, your calves and you do it and ours was like um 
um, five or six steps. So only a short one. It wasn't one of these 30 meter ones, but it's still, your feet were, you know, zinging a little for the, the rest of that night. You know, going to bed and you go, oh, my feet still a bit. But it's done. It's done. Tick the box, done it. And, and, and you, everything, everything often in life is, is this just another firewalk? Am I, am I, don't focus on the process, focus on the result you're going to have. And the, and the result is, you know, that success. Otherwise, you know, I, I remember um, Stadium Australia where we did the Olympics, 2000, you would have been about uh, 15 then. And you're, you're good at math. <laughs> so we, I, I, I signed up to do a flying fox across there for charity. And so I go up and, and, and you climb across, you harnessed up and you climb across this, um, you've probably done this, climb across this barrier. And I thought, oh, maybe I don't want to do this. And then I thought, you know, it's probably going to take me longer to climb back over the barrier than just take that step and go out on the flying fox and just go across the other side. So off I, I did. And I'm not a heights guy. So, uh, again, uh, I tell people I've done a flying fox across the stadium of Australia. They go, oh, how would you do that? No, like, you can't do them every day. Um, so, okay, okay, so here's here's one. So if I'm... A, pay, uh, a, a dentist right now, and I'm thinking, okay, how would I know um, either A, that I'm, I'm ready to be coached or that I have the right mindset or attitude to be coached? What would you say to that? Well, the first question is easy to answer. Am I ready to be coached? Go to the bathroom, look in the mirror. If there's somebody looking back at you, that's the person who's ready to be coached. Everybody needs coaches, everybody. And, and, and you know, Tiger Woods has a coach. Michael Jordan has a yeah. coach. You, know, you look at the tennis players when they play the 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 you know the Grand Slams. They they got millions of coaches in their boxes. They got a mindset coach, a mental coach, a breathing coach, a sitting coach, all that. So that there's coaches for everything. There, whatever you can think, you can be better at it, and you don't know how. So, mm. do you need a coach? Do you need a business coach? Um, sure. What was the second part of the question? Second part is, um, like, is there some sort of tell uh, when it comes to either attitude or mindset where I could kind of do like a self audit and go, okay, um, either I have a block that's going to prevent me from almost that sense of readiness. Like, is there some tell that, you know, I'm talking to someone, they are absolutely ready right now, or you know what, this isn't going to work for them because I'm, I'm seeing these cautions. Like what, what's that tell? Really good, and and this thought came into my head earlier when uh, we were talking, um, because you you kind of touched on this earlier, uh, as with me, and that is like, am I am I ready to be coached? And you know, is the time right? And I'm not sure whether it was Napoleon Hill or, or Clem Stone, and they said this before I was born, so that's a long time ago. But one of them said this. He said, "Don't." ever wait for the time to be absolutely right. Just begin with the tools at hand. And if they're not the tools you need, the tools you'll need will appear. And that's really what happens. The, the, the act of beginning is the, is, is, you know, it's, it's, you know, the, the, the longest journey starts with the first step. And, you know, I told my story, I started with a coach. It was the wrong coach. I was counting cotton rolls. He, you know, I'm going. No, that's this is not the coaching I need. I need coaching in in the philosophy of customer service in the business, not in terms of you know, can I do this with five tissues instead of four, or four, sorry, four tissues instead of five, and then I'm, 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 my expenses are, are less. It's um, sometimes coaching. Sometimes sometimes coaching. You got to spend. Sometimes coaching will teach you that you've got to spend money to make more money as well. Instead of being yeah. tight with your money and wondering why you're, you're never getting to momentum, you know, sometimes you've got to spend the money. That's what I did when I sold my house and put the money back into my practice. I bought a big Yellow Pages ad with the, the, the equity of my house, and that got me a year ahead because I didn't have to pay for the ad because I'd paid for it with my house. So everything I made from that ad was then profit. Did I make more money from that Yellow Pages ad the next year? I made a heck of a lot more. So that, that, that money that I made from the first ad pay for the ad the next year and so on and so on. And sometimes, we, and this is what Ed's teaching me at the moment, same thing. You, if you're going to market, remember that you're going to make a profit from the marketing and that profit, you put it back in. You don't 
spend it on operations because you've got the operations anyway. It's it it's you spend it on keeping the the marketing going, and you, and so you know today's customers pay for next week's customers, and that's that's what you've got to remember with coaching. You know, once you get that mindset happening, it's kind of like the the world's your oyster. Sometimes with coaching, as you would know, is that the problem that you start with is not the real problem. Sometimes you've got to, like Shrek says, peel back the layers of the onion and then the, the problem's back here. Fix this problem and then everything just gets better. But if you stay, stay focusing on this one, you know, it, it, you know, like people who have a rash and they go, oh, this rash, I keep putting this cream on, it's not getting better. Well, something they're eating that's doing it. Yeah, if you think, yeah. find what you're eating, oh, now my skin's really good. You know, I stopped eating you know, raspberries and now my skin's really good. So again, it's just getting to the, getting to the, getting to the the root of it. But find somebody who you identify with, or somebody who you feel is going to be your success. But again, don't procrastinate. You know, my first coach was the first one that came along. The second coach was really the second one that came along. I was glad that he came along. And in fact, that meeting was really weird because I just had laser eye surgery, so I was blind in one eye. They said, "Are you coming?" I said, "I can't get there." They said, "I said, you got anyone coming from my?" Way and they said, "Oh, we've got this guy. Uh, I've got a guy from Fairfield." And I said, oh, "Is that so and so?" And they, "Oh, yeah, he's a mate of mine. Yeah, he can give me a ride in and out." His practice and mine were two different practices. And I said, "What are you going to do?" He said, "I think I'm going to do, do this." I said, "Me too." We both grew our practices. They both didn't cut, become the same sort of practice. They became better versions of themselves. So we were both happier with improvements. You know, not everybody who goes to the gym is going to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. They're just going to look like a better version of themselves and they'll both be happy. And that's what you've got to realize in coaching. You just, you know, you don't want somebody who's going to turn you into a McDonald's practice. It's, you just want to be a better version of your own practice. Okay. Okay. So I'm sold. I'm listening and I'm like, okay, where do I go? Where do you want my eyeballs to go? So people can learn how they can connect and how they can take that next step with you. Well, the easiest thing is just um, find me on socials. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. Um, I'm on Twitter, but I don't know how, how to do it. Uh, but LinkedIn and Facebook, I'm all over that. David Moffat, M-O-F-F-E-T. Remember, there's six ways to spell Moffat, and E-T is the rarest. And I just say it's E-T, phone home, all right? Just phone home, E-T. Or from the French, Moffet, it, it, it works either way. Um, easy, easy to find. I think my name's even printed there on, on there. Just Google me, um, uh, David Moffat, dental coach, will find me on LinkedIn easy enough. Uh, David at the Albert, my business is the ultimate patient experience. That's a lot of typing. So it's David at the UPE.com. Uh, but I'm easily findable. You're going to put it in the chat after this anyway. So yeah. they'll, they'll find me. Um, and, and we just have a conversation, uh, a virtual cup of coffee. Uh, I say if we can find out over over 20 minutes, but my 20 minutes usually goes for about an hour. And you, you say, has it got to end? And I say, yeah, well, you know, it, it, we just chat. As, as sadly, we're going to have to end this shortly too, Sean, but I could talk forever. Um, heaven help me when I start my own podcast. Gosh, uh, <laughs> you know, I think I'm going to have to leave it to seven questions only. Okay, so do you know what the closing question is? Are you ready for it? Uh, I'm ready for it, but I don't know what it is. Okay, so David of today is walking down the street and you see 18-year-old David in the distance and you only have one moment to communicate one sentiment to him. What do you share? Oh, wow. <laughs> this, is, this is not a short answer for me because... <laughs> he, he's walking by. You're going to miss it. There's just... <laughs> because... because... My career passion when I was at school was that I wanted to be a radio announcer, you know, like, um, mm. like, uh, Wolfman Jack, you know, play music and just, do you know who Wolfman Jack is? No, you I know. do not. No, even that, like he, 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 he's like the, 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 the celebrity DJ from way back, but the radio is different now, but I, I, I did some community radio for about 10 years. I finished it up, um, about 2012 to 2020. Yeah, I, I, I did some community radio. I quite enjoyed that. Um, sometimes you, you think you're just talking to yourself. But uh, but 
that that was my passion was was radio. I don't I don't think I would have made a living. I would have made, I wouldn't have had the lifestyle that I have from dentistry. So again, that was a door, um, and that was the the school's advisor who said, "What are you doing that for? You, you, you're smarter than that." Um, but sometimes sometimes you just got to end up where you end up. I'm so glad. The other thing that I did after I became a dentist, I I applied for law school and got into law school. Thank goodness I never took that up. Um, we got enough lawyers in our family now, and um, and they can be nasty people. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> so I think you just got to follow your passion, but with reason. You've got to have you know what? Where is this passion going to take me? If it's going to take you to a life of of um, poverty and and struggle. Uh, you know, there's more to life than doing that. Um, I think. Um, you know, when I graduated, I was living off credit cards uh, for for years until I got a really good job and 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 learned to manage my debt. Uh, but but I think ultimately, the beauty of dentistry, if 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 I if I can kind of answer my own question, but with what you you're saying, like, what's a young dentist going to think? You know, the beauty of owning a dental practice is that you can determine where you're going to live, where you're going to send your children to school, where you're going to retire to, when you're going to retire to, if you manage that dental practice properly. All right. Now, mm -hmm. half the dentists out there don't do that and they hate dentistry. They get they get a yeah, they get a uh, they've got a student debt, they've got a practice debt, then they've got a wife that that's got credit card debt and life's a misery for them. But if you manage it right, you can really create the lifestyle of your dreams. You can live comfortably. You can set your children up for life, and you can enjoy the journey along the way, not just of being a dentist. And that's one of the things that I, I did. You know, after uh, after selling my practice in two thousand and seven, but still working on it, I did a lot of travel. You know, there's only a couple of places that I I missed out on when COVID started, and I, I hope I'll get to them, but. I pretty well ticked off 95% of, of the things that, that I wanted to do. I've been, I think uh, I've been to New York more than a dozen times. I've also been to Cleveland more than a dozen times. Um, Regrettably. No, I'm just joking. Oh, no, you're a mistake by the lake. That's what others say. I don't, I've never said that. Um, please don't quote me. Um, but no, I, I, I love Cleveland. I've seen the, the world's largest rubber stamp. I've been to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, and I got three or four other reasons to go there, it, 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 and it, and it's 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 quite a nice place. But but you know, I I see um, Times Square and I see um, New York in movies, and I go, oh yeah, I used to used to love going to New York. Stay in a different place, a different hotel every time, just to get a different part of Manhattan, and just use different transport. You know, you might be three hundred meters one way, and you use a completely different line to go up and down Manhattan. It's just just how it is. But but. I couldn't have done that if I hadn't have been a dentist. I played the greatest golf course in the world four times, which is in Pine Valley, Pine Valley in Clementine, New Jersey, and and not many people know about it, and not many people ever get onto it. And I've played it four times, and I could probably go back and play it again. It's not inexpensive to play, but is it worth it? Yeah, it is. And that's sometimes what coaching is too. It's not inexpensive to be coached properly, but the return on your investment is huge. And trying to do things on your own is a waste of your time and a, very costly because you're really sometimes just spinning your wheels, trying to work things out for yourself. When you really, the answers are there, you just got to find somebody to show you the way and hold your hand and, and guide you. So that's what I'd say. Even in life, if you're not going to be a dentist, find what you want to do, find people who can help you get there quicker, keep you in your lane, without the distraction to get the result. Because again, back to the firewall, the end result is worth the journey. Amen. Okay. So I love the gratitude that you just expressed for dentistry. Like it's so clear to me, David, that you, you love dentistry. Um, and it has been so easy on this podcast to just highlight you and, and honor you as an innovator, as someone that's pioneering positive change. I love what you're doing uh, with the ultimate patient experience and the impact you're making in dentist life through your coaching. Seriously, thank you so much for letting me interview you today. Well, Sean, th thank you very much. And, and, and I mentioned this in our lead ups that um, I'm working on this project of trying to create a safe community globally for dentists to be able to identify those points in their timeline where they have these 
serious questions. When should I buy a house? When should I buy an office? When should I have a family? When should I move to an area that 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 um, yeah is, is is a nice place to live? When should I retire? And so I'm trying to form that. I'm you know, I'm in the process of forming that community now, um, and also helping dentists to avoid the the hassle. Where you know what's the best printer to buy? What's the best camera to buy? Uh, we're trying to shortcut that so that they can say. You know, in this community, I just have to ask the question and the, the answer is there. I don't have to do all that research mm. myself because sometimes you can... You, you... Remember I told you um, in this story about the friend who came with me to look at that practice where the orthodontics was? He was looking yeah. to buy a practice at the same time. In fact, he came to my office, my practice, my practice after I bought my practice and, and I'd been there nine months and he said, I'm thinking of buying myself, himself, an apartment. Well, fast forward two months and I bought myself an apartment because I was renting. I thought, yeah, yeah, I could probably. Anyway, that was the start of the 1987 real estate boom. It was just after the 87 stock market crash and real estate went. The apartment I bought, I sold it a year later for 85% profit. 85% profit. And and my friend never bought. He was a procrastinator. He never bought. He never, ever bought. He never actually, I don't think he ever even owned his own practice. He never actually even mm. stayed in a practice long enough to see whether his work lasted. He used to work oh, two man. part-time jobs and every year he'd change one. So he, he really only saw his work last two years. Um, sadly, that was in his mindset. I don't know what was the difference between him and me mentally on that. I don't know what, you know, I, I found that in owning a, an office and being in that one office for 28 years, you, you know, you got to see the generations. You got to see your, the that your patients have children, and some of them have children, and and they, everybody became your family. And that again, back to the the community and the relationships, I really enjoyed that. And even though I moved away from that, from living in that community, um, it was still, you know, it was it was it was the the town where I I went to school or where we used to go for our big shop and. Um, and, and and it was a central location, and um, and uh, and I, I miss. You know, people say, "Do you miss the practice of dentistry?" Sometimes I don't miss all the the doing of stuff, but I do miss the people. And some of them are still like, since I left there two thousand fourteen, that's nine years ago. A lot of them are still on my social media, you know, and and communicate. You know, when I tell them things I'm doing with my coaching, they go, "Yeah, that's what you used to do for us." You know, that's why we kept coming to you. So I, I, I love—I just love that—that—that that, um, that connection with the people side of things. As I'm enjoying the podcasting, and I'm enjoying helping set up this community, this online community for dentists as well. So even if you're not interested in my coaching, and and they they watch this, they go, "Oh, what's that community?" Reach out to me because we're forming that, and mid-November, that's the, the launch of that's going to be something really huge. Well, I'm super excited about that community and best of luck on the podcast that you're going to be starting. Um, again, know that I'm 100% in your corner. You need anything. Uh, and then also I thought of one quote that I feel like is a, I don't know, it's like a good bow tie to this episode. And I think it was Wayne Gretzky. Uh, following what you were saying about Michael Jordan, I think he said you will, what, you'll always miss the shot like that you never take. Yeah, was that Gretzky or Jordan? But Gretzky, I, I don't know. It was it was one of them, and that's the whole point. Like, if someone's on the cusp right now of doing something, like I love what you said about in taking that step. I don't want to say it's almost like the provision or or the doors unlock or what's needed shows up, and yet it almost takes a little bit of faith to just take that first step. And that's my encouragement to the listeners right now from everything you've said. It, uh, David, it is been, just take that step. It might have been Gretzky who said that, but I, I like this one of Gretzky's even better, and that is that he never he said, I, I don't play to where the puck is. I play to where the puck is going to be. And um and 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 that's what you gotta do in business. Sometimes you gotta say, This is where I have to be, this is where things are, are, are heading, and I've got to be there at that intersection. No point in me going here and when I get there, the bus is gone. And really important. Now, ho- ice hockey is a really hard concept for Australians because um, we don't play it that much. And you play underwater hockey, or is that just New Zealand? No, we play. Yeah, we, that's uh, water polo. We play grass hockey, um, but ice hockey. 
I, I, the description I like about that is I, I went to, what was it? I went to a fight and a game broke out. Um, like, do they actually, do they actually use a puck? Yeah, they, they, they just they just go there to fight. And, and well, David, it has been an honor. We'll have to do this again. I'm but sure. again, well, thank I'll, you. Have, I'll have you on my podcast, um, and and uh, and that's a certainty, Sean. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this. It's been a been a real pleasure and an honor to be part of uh, of your uh, podcast. And uh, I wish you success with your your business as well. And uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to having you, your, your uh, products on our community as well. I think that's going to be a, a, a win for everybody involved, for, for our community and for you and for, for us organising that. It's going, to, it's going to be big. So appreciate the time, my friend. It's been, it's been great and uh, looking forward to uh, when I get to – there's plenty of golf courses in Arizona, so I've got to get over there and, and play some more of those. That sounds like a plan. Thank you so much, David. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for listening, and be sure to follow so you never miss an episode. To learn more about what's going on in dentistry, check out innovationindentistry.com.